now, Mr. Uh, oh, excuse me, Lord Scarbladder. You and your horde of orcs are gonna find these catacombs most sufficient for your needs. If you'll just uh, follow along there on that non-repo blue enumerated floor plan I've provided, but you see, there are 33 main chambers, five secret corridors, and a particularly nasty passage into the Underdark. Did I mention that the previous owner's gonna leave behind his carrion crawler? Yes, yes, it's all very nice. But do I really need eight different pit traps? I'll lose half my goblin hirelings before the first adventurer ever steps foot into the place. Well, think of it as a uh, lackey incentive program. Oh, so those damned magic mouths at every alcove? Well, that's the price you gotta pay for security. And, and this maze section. Do you really think that I want to get up and work through that every morning? It could be model. Do you know what it's going to cost? To replace those iron maidens alone in Hey, don't sweat it, don't sweat it. You know what? I know some people. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Hi, this is Bob, 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 v v v v Vila. And now, it's time for the show, This Old Dungeon. The show where grognards go to get their grog on. Pretend to do this, we're gonna get a lot of stuff done. We're gonna kick some ass. We're gonna be awesome. Featuring your hosts. I'm Briggy, I'm Thomas's wife, and I'm the noob. Somebody here call a carpenter? Uh, this is Thomas, husband to Briggy. And uh, let's see, I work for a library, I write, I draw, I paint, I do all of this, but none of it very well. The truth is, I can always find games, though. This is Luau Lu. I could charitably call myself a game designer and game publisher, but definitely a veteran role player of 35 plus years. We work on it the rest of the night, we get it together. We can do this, right? There's no way in hell we can do it. Welcome, Dungeoneers. This is Lou Alu, and uh, we have an addendum to the Lords of Creation game. I know you're thinking, addendum? <laughs> Lou, man, that was like four weeks ago you put that thing out. Well, uh, I apologize. It's been a busy holiday time and uh, lots going on in the world. And aside from that, I was actually waiting in hopes that uh, we might get an extra interview that I could throw on here with this addendum. Uh, we'll talk more about that later. But at any rate, I wanted to get this out before things get much older and we end up putting out our next episode uh, and getting beyond the Lords of Creation uh, topic anyhow. So first off, uh, we have a few different inputs that we got for this just days after we had recorded that episode. Originally, I had reached out to Alan Hammock and uh, Lauren Schick to see what they knew about the Lords of Creation and what they could tell me about uh, Tom Mulvey in general as a gamer, as a person, as a writer. And I wanted to read some of those responses back to you. And then we've got an excellent interview with an Akron library uh, worker, uh, Akron University library worker, excuse me, uh, Mike Monaco. And we're going to tack that on to this addendum also. So, oh, and uh, being really big into the uh, mechanics of a game 
and uh, that not being a topic that everybody else wanted to get into last time, I do want to take this quiet little special moment just between you and I to go over some of those mechanical things I wanted to look at for Lords of Creation uh, in the other episode, but for time constraints and the you know the the patience of the other hosts, uh, I didn't have the room to. So uh, at any rate. Let's get into some of these responses. So I had uh, reached out to Alan Hammock, uh, who's just an amazing guy, by the way. I got a real wonderful opportunity to play uh, Boot Hill with him this last summer, virtually at the uh, North Texas RPG Con. You, you, people talk about, oh, you know, you, you don't want to meet some of your heroes or whatever, but man, I got nothing but nice things to say about him. He is just a fun guy and, and super approachable. So at any rate, uh, that aside... Uh, I had asked him, uh, you know, I told him, hey, we're doing this podcast about the Lords of Creation. Did you have much uh, interaction with Tom Moldley? Do you know why it is that even though he was working for TSR or turning in, you know, material for TSR, that they didn't publish his game? Uh, and this was his response. Howdy, Lou. I didn't have much to do with Lords of Creation, unfortunately. I say nothing but good things about Tom, but he seemed to be, or, I'm sorry, seemed to me to be a more private writer than some of us. I didn't know him as well as Lawrence, Zeb, and Harold did. You might get interesting stuff from them. As for a falling out, okay, now this has to do with, I, I questioned whether there was some sort of falling out that made it so that TSR wasn't interested in publishing his Lords of Creation or, or didn't wind up publishing it. In response to that, he says, As for a falling out, all designers have big egos. Not a slam, we have to. And I believe all of us feel TSR forked us over on multiple occasions. As for the particular circumstances regarding Lords of Creation, I can't add any more. But it's possible one of the others can. Good luck. So that was a nice bit uh, from Alan. It's kind of interesting to think about, you know, all these guys with their, their hands in the gene pool of uh, all those wonderful TSR games uh, and, and the idea of them, you know, putting forth what they think is, you know, the best design and maybe having discussions about that and all this, you know, with his comment about egos and things like that. The next person I would like to read from, and this is a little bit longer, um, so I, I did contact Lawrence Schick, and he was super nice also. Uh, you know, he told me, you know, hey, I'm a little bit busy. Send me the questions. I'll, I'll write you back. And he did so really promptly, and, and I really thank him for that. So uh, I'm going to be reading both sides of this interview. Uh, so here we go. Uh, this is me. This starts with me asking him the question and then him in response. So... Like yourself, Tom was a major creative force within the hobby. Did you know him well? And if so, how would you describe him? What would the common gamer have taken away from a chance meeting with him in your mind's imagination? Did he have any token sayings or mannerisms that you remember? So he responds, I knew Tom well. We'd been to college together at Kent State where we collaborated on many projects. It was there that we first started playing OD&D in 1975 and created together the campaign setting called The Known World that became the background for D&D starting with the first expert set. This is say, uh, setting was later renamed Mistara. I joined TSR as a designer in early 1979, became head of the design department, and hired Tom as another designer about a year later. Tom was tall, dark, and wore well-trimmed facial hair, which was unusual for the time, and wore a broad-brimmed leather Australian outback hat pretty much everywhere. He was a sharp-witted, but also sharp-tempered and reacted badly to perceived slights. But he was erudite about fantasy, horror, and world history, 
and had a strong storytelling sense. He was a bold rider who took chances and would rather go too far than not far enough. A common gamer meeting him would find him amiable and polite and generous with his time, but highly opinionated. I found that quite interesting. You know, he really gives you that picture. You know, you think about this guy that gave us the Isle of Dread, and you know, now you can picture him with, you know, uh, his facial hair and the Australian hat and all that. Uh, you know, just the adventure you imagine to have uh, generated such a piece. Next question I gave, do you have any insights to his design process or influences? He obviously created a lot of pulp-style adventures. Was there any background material that he really liked or talked about that may have inspired a lot of this, or was it just a widespread of good reads? <clears throat> his response, Tom was devoted to the weird tales writers of the 30s, as was I, and later authors that they influenced, such as his favorite, Philip Jose Farmer, but he also loved earlier fantasists such as Lord Dunsany, William Hope Hogson, and A.A. Merritt, as well as mystery writers like John Dickinson Carr. The weirder the story, the better he liked it. The next question I asked him was, You're credited as having brought him to TSR. Is that true, and if so, what about him attracted your attention and made him seem like the right guy for joining the creative design team? Of course, he says, you know, see above. He answered most of that uh, earlier. Uh, but he does add, before going to TSR, I worked extensively with Tom and knew what he was capable of. I asked him, even though he was doing work for TSR through 1986, his game Lords of Creation was published by Avalon Hill in 1983. Did he pitch it to TSR? What factors do you suppose led him to publishing with another company, if you have this knowledge? He responded, if I ever knew the exact sequence of events there, I've forgotten it. By that time, I was working at Coleco in Connecticut and was in only sporadic touch with Tom. We were both lousy correspondents, and this was long before the internet. TSR laid off a bunch of staffers in 1982, IIRC, uh, Tom among them, and after that, he worked as a freelancer. So that kind of helps us understand that, you know, though he was submitting things for TSR well past the Lords of Creation, that doesn't necessarily mean he was you know, working directly there or exclusively uh, exclusively with them. Um, my final question to him, uh, there have been a few people that have told me that they playtested Lords of Creation at the Dungeon Hobby Shop after hours. Do you recall any of this? Were you ever a part of it? Was it common for homebrews and other non-TSR products to be played in those sessions? He responded, I don't recall this exactly, but certainly Lords of Creation reflected Tom's interests in genre-mixing campaigns with high-powered characters going all the way back to our early D&D sessions in Ohio. It was Tom who came up with the idea of rules that would take D&D characters to a mortal level, functionally demigods, and that was reflected in his later work such as Lords of Creation as well. I found that kind of interesting. I never, you know, to be honest, I do not own the immortal rules for D&D. It was never kind of my my jazz, um, but uh, I, I never really placed that he was involved in that. I never really saw him as a guy that was pushing game uh, aesthetics to the demigod level. Um, you know, a lot of the, the writings that I have of his, as far as games go, are all very simple games where you're an explorer, where, where you know, you're facing some very common uh, tropes of pulp genre, and, and not the, you know, gods out to, you know, change you know, the world sort of scenarios. So I th thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, he mentions, or I mentioned, um, the playtesting. 
and I really, uh, unfortunately, have to admit to you that uh, I was trying very hard to get a gentleman by the name of uh, David Bullis to do an interview with me, um, but I've somehow lost contact with him. I know that the last time I talked with him, he was feeling under the weather, so I, you know, I hope that he's okay. I hope things pulled through for him, um, but I'm not able to provide that interview uh, for you today. Um, hopefully, though, we'll get with him because uh, I think he's got a lot of probably interesting stories to tell us about the Dungeon Hobby Shop and some of the playtesting that he was involved in there uh, in, in just the early days in gaming and what it was like to be there in the heart of everything. All right. The next interview you're going to hear was uh, recorded uh, about a, two weeks ago um, with a gentleman, uh, Mike Monaco, um, that works for the Akron University Library staff. Mike was just a pleasure to talk to and had some interesting insights about Tom Moldvay and the artist for Lords of Creation, Dave Billman, who both lived in and around the Akron area. In fact, as you'll hear in the interview, Mike was actually putting together a library display uh, focusing on the game module Omegacron, <laughs> Omega Akron, Omegacron, I don't know, I don't know which way it's supposed to be pronounced, folks, I'm sorry, I'm just throwing all three out. Um, which takes place in Akron, Ohio, in the far-flung future where uh, everything's a dystopia and there's all these you know, splinter groups of mutants and things. Um, so he's putting on a display that kind of talked about that piece and about Tom and Bill and, and uh, the Akron Library being a uh, major centerpiece for that adventure. Uh, so here's Mike Monaco, uh, fabulous gentleman, man. Hope you enjoy this interview. Dungeoneers with me this morning. Uh, I've got Mike Monaco. Uh, from the University of Akron, works in the library there, and uh, he's got some some different angles uh, to give us on uh, Lords of Creation, or more particularly the module Omegacron from that uh, series. So, Mike, thank you for being part of the podcast this morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, you know, one of the things I think all listeners like to hear is uh, kind of our origin stories as gamers. You know, what, how how we got into the hobby, what brought us here you know, helps us all relive a little bit of our own nostalgia. So uh, do you mind sharing that with us before we get going? Well, yeah, sure. Um, so as a kid, I was always kind of interested in, like, fantasy and horror stuff, you know, maybe because I wasn't into sports. I don't know. <laughs> but I remember when I was real young, um, I found the uh, the uh mythology books. So they were, like, Ingrid and something else. Dollar were, like, this husband and wife team who did these children's books. And they had one on Norse mythology, which was... I just loved, you know, they had one in Greek mythology too that I read some too, but that got me reading at an early age, and my mom, uh, who, you know, who had been kind of a, you know, a hippie, was familiar <laughs> with Lord of the Rings, so she suggested, you know, I, I look, you know, I read The Hobbit, and um, shortly after that, uh, my brother had a couple of friends, my brother's like a couple years older than me, but it was around 1980, and they uh, introduced us to D&D. And um, it's just been, you know, downhill from there since. <laughs> Very good. So, uh, you know, out on the uh, interwebs here, uh, we're posting uh, kind of notices that we're looking for information about Lords of Creation, and you were kind enough to reach out to me. Um, what's what's your background as far as that game system goes, and, and particularly the module Omegacron? Yeah, so I'm much more familiar with the module than the game system itself. I... Um, I kind of got interested in Tom Moldvay again um, back in like maybe about 10 years or so ago when I just, just discovered the whole um, OSR, you know, the old school revival movement. And I kind of got interested in the, the basic 
D&D rules that he wrote and you know, had a little more, you know, um, appreciation for them because I had started playing D&D again um, and especially and just running that, that basic set. And one of the, the people I recruited to play with me actually ha had known Tom Moldvay. Moldvay had already passed away by then. But uh, this guy, Bob Kindle, who's still around and runs a, uh, a dice he calls it the the light trading company. He sells dice um, at conventions mostly, but he started telling me some stories about Tom Moldvay uh, when I met him, and um, so just kind of following that you know that uh, breadcrumb trail, you know, I found out about Lords of Creation, and it didn't really sound like a game I'd be that interested in because I'm more towards you know the, you know uh, oriented towards fantasy than oh, okay. the science fiction and stuff. I didn't quite understand what it was about, but then when I saw that there was a module that was based on Akron, you know, <laughs> it kind of piqued my interest because I'm living in Akron now, and I really I love you know post-apocalyptic stuff too, you know, Thunder the Barbarian and stuff, and so it just seemed like a really cool idea. So I finally found a, um, a, a copy of the module uh, online and uh, and bought it, and it's just been it's really amazing, you know, to learn more about. I gotta ask. Uh, I was pronouncing it Omega Cron. Uh, being from Akron, do you pronounce it Omega Akron? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually, I'm, I'm saying it Omega Cron too, okay. just because it makes kind of makes more sense. But I always, you know, capitalize the A when I'm writing it out. I'm not sure if, <laughs> if it's meant to be that way. But Interesting. It's a great fun. Um, kind of taking a quick sidetrack here. Your, your friend, did he tell you any interesting stories that you remember about Tom Moldvay? I got a few from uh, Lawrence Schick, uh, but I, I'm always looking to collect more as I put together this little addendum here. Well, yeah. So his memories of Moldvay were that Moldvay was, you know, was actually very, very well educated and read everything, and used all, you know, kind of drew on all of that when he was creating his modules for D and D and and this and then for Lord's Creation and whatnot. He also mentioned that Moldvay uh, was into painting miniatures. Um, which you know kind of would be a common interest <laughs> a for gamer, me. Huh? Only, yeah, he's a total, total gamer. But he, but he said that he, um, my friend Bob said he wanted to run a a module at a convention in like two days, and he had and Bob and Bob painted like you know a dozen figures for him, you know, and had them ready to go. And he you know he's just always impressed with you know how hardworking he was. He would oh, just wow. never stop. Yeah. Huh. So as I looked at the module uh, this morning, it, it's pretty extensive. I, I was. You know, as far as a, a setting guide, it's it's got lots of little nooks and crannies of the city for characters to go explore. <laughs> um, how much of that really lines up with your experience in Akron? Well, okay, so I, I've I've actually got the module right here too. So like the color map on the back of the booklet is is very accurate. I mean, you know, the Dome City isn't here. <laughs> Shucks. But everything else is is perfectly lines up with you know the real you know geography. Um, the you know. The, the major landmarks are are all here, you know, the, the Glendale Cemetery. There, that little player's handout that has the short history of Akron mm -hmm. is actually pretty much entirely factual. There's a few there's a few places where he's maybe embellishing, you know, or, or kind of filling in some gaps. Uh -huh. I think, you know, the one thing that well, this will be a spoiler for anybody who's going to play the the module, so I don't know if I should I should nah, say it. But, but so, so one of the things he mentions is that uh, Lucius Bierce who was this uh, Civil War character in Akron, won a sword in single combat in Canada when he was fighting in the Patriots War. That may, that's probably, that, that, that seems to be true. Um, whether or not it was like a duel, like Mulvey, you know, lays it out is more questionable. It might be more that, you know, 
he pulled it off a guy's body at, after a battle. <laughs> but um, it's mentioned as like one of like his prized possessions, and that he donated it to the University of Akron Library with all of his books, and and that's just made up. I couldn't find any record of there being you know a particular sword. Although it becomes very important in the module when you're, hmm. and you work for the library, but yeah, so I work for the University of Akron Library, and um, that was another thing that really made me interested in OmegaCron is just, yeah, just the fact that part of the adventure takes place in the library, and again, it's he take he takes some liberties uh, in the in the adventure. You have to recover um, one of the last surviving copies of the Bill of Rights in order to incite a revolution in this in OmegaCron. Um, we don't actually have a, no, an authentic copy of the Bill of Rights, um, but uh, I, but it's kind of cool. In the in the module, it makes it sound like the uh, University of Akron is is like the last bastion of uh, education and knowledge uh, in this dark future that they paint in this timeline for the yeah. Game. So yeah, that's yeah, that's very flattering. Um, yeah, <laughs> they actually still have librarians in the library there. You know, in this you know post-apocalyptic future, which you know I like to think would be true. We'll see. And then the, uh, they talk about the uh, skyscraper district is kind of overrun by mutants, and they call that uh, Cascade City based on a Cascade Plaza. Is that a real yeah, place? Yeah, Cascade Plaza is a real place downtown, it, and it does yeah, have some of our taller buildings. So that makes everything. So yeah, everything really lines up with the real geography of Akron, um, and e even you know some of the crazier elements like the I can't remember what they're called, but there's like these intelligent. Wood, uh, woodchuck people, I think the the Weejacks. Oh, okay. That, and that yeah, that's kind of an in joke about Akron because back in the 1800s, when Summit County, Ohio, was trying to choose a, a county seat, one of the cities proposed uh, was Akron, and another one uh, was this this region nearby, and it was derided as having nothing but you know had a population of 10,000, one person, and 900, uh, 9,999 woodchucks. And so ever since then, you know, there's, there's been, you know, there's a charcuterie trail that goes through that area. There's, um, and at the University of Akron, our old uh, student dining um, area was called the charcuterie, which again, which I never, which I didn't realize was a reference again to woodchucks and not just, I was thinking like a chuck wagon or something, but yeah, it's yeah. a reference to woodchucks. So he, uh, he sneaks in and probably there's a lot of other in jokes that I, I just don't catch because I haven't lived in Akron my whole life or anything, but yeah, it's, um, that's a lot of, yeah, local flavor, uh, which you wouldn't expect for, for, you know, for something like yeah, that. For just a module, yeah, to, to go in that detail and that be, line up so, uh, authentically. Now, um, do you have much information on the way of, uh, how long, uh, Moldvay had lived in the area? And, and I think you also mentioned that you thought the artist, uh, Dave Billman might have been from the area. Yeah, so so Moldvay, um, as far as I know, grew, grew up in Northeast Ohio. He went to Kent State University, which is you know about half an hour from Akron, and he. Um, but then he lived in the in the region most of his life. After that, uh, he helped run um, a convention in the area, which is called Neovention, Neo being Northeast Ohio. And uh, a lot of the time, that was actually one of the University of Akron. They started moving it around after the, uh, after a few years, and it was they also had it held in Cleveland and Kent and a few other uh, cities in the area. Um, and he he and he died in Akron, so um, I he may have moved around a bit. I'm not I'm not sure during his TSR years if he was if he had moved out to his, uh you know to Lake Geneva Lake or Geneva. not, but. Um, yeah, uh, he, he definitely has a lot of roots in um, in Ohio because 
Well, so one thing I learned about him that was not actually not correct, uh, talking to Bob Kindle, he 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 kind of he repeated this legend that um, Moldvay's uh, one of Moldvay's relatives had destroyed all of his D and D stuff because it's you know satanic. <laughs> after he died, but that wasn't true at all. Actually, uh, one of his sisters, uh, Rebecca, was the model for uh, the character Sister Rebecca in one of his <laughs> modules. So you know, they 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 totally supported his you know his hobby and, and career, I guess. Um, but but he did nice. die in Akron, so yeah. So he spent a lot of time in in the area. Uh, Dave Billman, I haven't been able to find as much out about. I do know that he is an alumni of the University of Akron, uh, but he's been kind of private and hasn't really answered any of my questions, so I haven't I haven't been poking too hard. Um, mm. He does work in the area as a graphic designer, so he's still around here, and so he must have been familiar with the with you know the local landmarks and stuff. And the illustrations are all pretty pretty accurate. I, I mean, I, I noticed there was a couple of things that are. You know, he might have been taking some artistic license with, like, the statue of uh, of the Indian at Portage Path. But there really is a statue like that, you know. Um, huh. every, everything. So the uh, – what about the uh, the bell tower in the cemetery? Uh, is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. And that Glendale Cemetery is pretty – it's kind of a famous landmark. There are actually, like, little brown tourist signs when people go and, you know, they take ghost tours in, in uh, October, and, and people just go to see it because it is a, just a big old cemetery. That actually reminds me of another, you know, one of the weirder things that you from the Moldvay's short history of Akron handout that you might assume is not true. Um, he mentions that one of the cough, when they were moving the, the cemetery from one hill, you know, to, to its current location in order to build a university, they dug up a uh, one of the founders of the city of Akron, and there was a glass window on top of his coffin, and you could see, you know, so you can see inside, which was a common thing, mm -hmm. you know, back in the 1800s. But um, he was remarkably well preserved, and that you know takes on a real sinister connotation in the module. But it actually, I did find that that really was true, um, <laughs> because he actually left a lot of footnotes in his um, in the handout, so I was able to just kind of check, you know, some of the books that he mentioned, because we have them all, so they're all local history books, you know. Now the uh, your foray into this module wasn't just you know on a lark. You were putting together some sort of display or something for the. Library? Well, yeah. So the University of Akron, and you know, 2020 is our sesquicentennial, 150 year anniversary. So uh, people in the archives were doing, were putting together all kinds of interesting, you know, displays and events about the university's history and Akron's history. And I I work in technical services, which is you know cataloging and things like that. So I didn't really have I didn't think I had anything to offer to the sesquicentennial um, you know events. But then I thought about Omegacron as something that would be kind of a, a fun thing to look at because it is tied to the university's history in a way, and it's also about the university's future in a way or Akron's future. <laughs> Stark future. So I thought it'd be fun to put together a little display about that. So I started working on, and and um, and that led me down a rabbit hole too because so in the in Omega in Omegacron there's a new domed city Novos Akros that uh, the adventurers are you know basically there to overthrow because they're you know they're ruled by these techno technocratic tyrants. And um, as I, I was curious, you know, I don't, I don't know how I, I ran across it, honestly, but I, I, I found that there was a, 
a CD put out in 2012 called Novos Acros, and it presents itself as the soundtrack to a movie, Novos Acros, that was being made <laughs> in the 1980s, um, and you know, but was never released. So uh, it was actually put together by the owners of a local record store in 2012. Uh, they're celebrating Record Store Day, which is something that's still an ongoing thing, kind of like Free RPG Day that you know for role players. Oh, but cool. with record stores, there'd be like kind of these um, special releases of CDs or records, especially on vinyl. Um, but they wanted to participate, and so they thought, that, you know, well, we should put together you know a sampler of some local Akron bands. And uh, one of their friends uh, was a gamer and showed them Omega Cron, and they. And something clicked, and they thought, "Oh, this is perfect." It's because it's also Dude, like a concept album. Yeah, so it became yeah. this concept album, and they got Charlie Wagers, who I guess also has done some comic book illustration, to do a mock-up of a poster. And the poster has, you know, is based on the illustrations in the module. It has the same characters and everything, the same, you know, a lot of the monsters. And uh, <laughs> I was able to get a copy of, you know, the CD and a, and a copy of the poster that. Because they actually produced the full-size poster to go with the CD for for Record Store Day, so those are going to be in the display. And I thought I'd do some kind of scavenger hunt where you'd have to find different things that are mentioned in the module. You know, like there's a, like a statue a statue of Bierce, or you know, visit the John Brown house because John Brown is a character too, because he was also has some Akron connections. But of course, the pandemic kind of put the kibosh to all that. <laughs> so there's not we're not really having people oh, in the man. library right now so it doesn't make a lot of sense to make a display but i might still try to put something together i think by the summer things may be opening up more i definitely think that's something i mean it, you know uh there's such whimsy in a project like that i think anyone student you know visiting a family member or whatever is something fun to look at and think about yeah uh, that's that'd be cool uh the uh the album, uh, again, is Novos Acros? Yeah. Is that what it's called? It's called Novos Acros, and uh, it was put out by Pattern Based, which is the name of the studio. Um, and they have a website. You know, I can send you the link. You can maybe throw it in your, your footnotes. So you can still download. Yeah, on the Facebook. Yeah. You, can, you can listen to samples, and I think you can buy the whole album for like five bucks or something digitally. I don't know. It's I guess the the actual physical CD is harder to come by. You know, just the owner of, of Square Records happened to to find one and send it to me. But he's, and he said they occasionally come through because they deal in, in used records too. But you know, it's probably a pretty small print run. Now, uh, w without being too harsh, uh, how many stars would you give the album? <laughs> okay, well, it's not my kind of music. You know, I I'm more into <laughs> okay. like you know rock and heavy metal and things like that. Uh -huh. It's 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 like an electronic music okay. um i mean some of it's kind of kind of a neat industrial sound to it i could see i could definitely see using it as a soundtrack if i was going to run omegacron which I, oh yeah like a little background yeah. music and it's yeah. and it's really cool because it's they did all the bands totally went all in and like each of the songs <laughs> is named after something in the module so like it's really a setup to be like a soundtrack you know there's oh cool like the battle of the of uh, the library i think is actually one of the <laughs> things so um yeah so i mean I, yeah i can't you know i mean i can't really rate rate it as music because it's not the kind of music i listen <laughs> not to your genre. yeah it's not really my genre but, but it is pretty cool I and mean, all the bands are pretty distinct you know different sounding i say it's so amazing that you know something that at that point was what uh what would that be 20 26 years old or i don't know i can't do the math but anyhow uh -huh. uh, an item so far back in the past and so obscure that everybody, you know, 
came together and got around it and uh, did something with it. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, that's that's really amazing. Because um, as I would think, you know, Lords of Creation was largely, you know, well forgotten by then because Avalon Hill, yeah. you know, went out a bit. Well, was bought out by I guess by DSR. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Now, have you uh, have you ever actually used the module in a gaming uh, setting? No, unfortunately, I have not. I'm really looking forward to running it now, though. Um, and I think, you know, when whenever, you know, we can start gathering socially again, I'll probably run it for my group. Because I showed it to them when I first got it, um, you know, before every all this happened. And, uh, they're, you know, they were kind of interested, you know, because like, we often, we don't, we kind of rotate game masters anyway. And so, like, one mm -hmm. guy will run a campaign and then decide he's done and somebody else yeah. will take over on something else. So this, this I think it would be... I think it helps a lot with burnout and stuff. I, I think more groups should do that. We, we used to do that. It was really helpful. Oh yeah, and it and it also and it also helps when we can't get everybody together for a game, somebody can just, you know, step up and say, "Yeah, I'll just run this one shot," you know, or whatever. Yeah. So hitting, yeah. yeah, so I think I do want to try running it. I don't know if I'll use the Lord of Creations rules because I actually haven't picked up the, you know the core rules yet. But, you know, it but it looks like it's pretty easily adaptable to other systems, you know. Um Yeah, when I was looking at it, I was kind of I was just spying it as a, a general setting and I thought, "Yeah, this is pretty well developed as a setting." Um, the adventure itself, I, I didn't get all the way through it, so I can't really give it a yay or nay. But, but just as far as, you know, like you said, there's lots of locales, and they're well-detailed. And, uh, uh, and I thought, man, maybe sneak this into a Mutant Crawl Classics game or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that would probably work really well. And there's and I like that there's a little bit of investigation and kind of piecing together, you know, from different people's stories what's really happening in the background. So it's not just all hack and slash. It's, it's, a, it's, yeah. it's a nice little adventure. All right. Will, any final thoughts on uh, Tom Moldvay, Dave Billman, or Lords of Creation? Um, I, th I, I think that probably covers it all. Um, you know, through my, I actually wrote up a couple of notes ahead of time to make sure. Yeah, I think I think, I think we covered everything. All right. Well, I got to ask, uh, anytime we have someone on our podcast, we, we deal a lot in trying to renovate old systems, old ventures, uh, some stuff that people have a fondness for, some stuff that people say, ah, you know, this could never be made usable for an actual group. <laughs> Do you have anything that uh, that you would like to, to see covered? Oh, well, yes. So my personal windmill is uh, <laughs> the book Fantasy Wargaming. Uh, that was edited by Bruce Galloway, and it actually has like five, five co-authors. Um, <laughs> Always a good sign, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, and it's an amazing uh, – there's actually a really interesting story behind that game too, which I, before I, I started diving into Moldvay, I, I was, I started tr trying to track down the people behind it, and at this point, only one of the original authors is still around, and he was not a gamer, which pro you know also probably helps explain why it's considered such a, you know, <laughs> such I'm an odd feeling. game. But, but but yeah, so a lot of people say it's unplayable. I don't think that's true. Because actually, my brother and I, back in the early 80s, we found a copy of the book, you know, at Walden Books or whatever, and uh, I managed to play it. I mean, it's very complicated, probably more complicated than anyone would try to do nowadays. But there's a lot of great ideas in it, and um, I think it's I think it's kind of misunderstood sometimes. Though I think it's less meant to be a game people should play, and more of an illustration of how to create your own game. Uh. Um, but uh, but it has yeah it has lots of you know great ideas some of them I think other games eventually did pick up you know some of them are have been totally abandoned um, but yeah I think you know, taking a look at that would be it would be interesting. 
have to put that on the list of to check out. That's that sounds interesting for sure. Well, I really enjoy uh, having spent some time with you this morning. I appreciate you giving up your time to be with us, and uh, and I wish you the best of luck in life. And uh, hopefully, this COVID thing passes quick, and we can get back to gaming. Yeah, yeah. Amen to that. Well, well. Thanks for having me. I, I really enjoyed talking about this, and I'm looking forward to the next next episode. <laughs> thanks, Mike. All right, I want to thank Mike Monaco for that interview. That was sure a pleasure talking with him. Before we end tonight, I want to look back at the game itself and kind of talk more about some of the mechanics behind it. The game, as we talked about in the last podcast, is really front-loaded. Um, there's a lot of little nitty-gritty parts when you're putting the character together. Once it's together, though, it really plays fairly smoothly as a game. It doesn't have some of the old-school... Um, features that you're, you're used to like charts and all sorts of stuff that you got to look after uh, it's pretty much once the character is assembled the rules are fairly intuitive after that uh, for the most part um, at character creation you're looking at five major traits and then about seven or so traits that are built off of those so the five major traits are muscle speed stamina mental luck and then uh, each of those, you roll 2d20, generates a number, and then you divide that by 10, rounding up if there's any remainder, decimal, what have you, to come up with some form of bonus. So obviously, you're looking at pretty much a bonus between 1 and 2, or 0, I suppose. Um, well, no, it couldn't be 0, could it? <laughs> Anyhow, um, there are some adjustments to that. So, for example, for your luck roll, um, you do get to roll a, a bonus associated with that, and you get plus five on top of your, your regular adjustment. Um, and then there's also this like personal force, and that personal force is figured out by adding up all your stats and dividing by ten. Um, and then there's also a physical stat that's kind of a summary of your th or an average of your three physical traits, um, muscle, speed, and stamina. You also end up getting a D10 roll for being first level, you get to add that to your stamina, and that creates life points, which are basically the hit points of the game. From there, you go on to devise your skills. Now, this is what kind of I found kind of amusing. Now, I mentioned this in the other podcast. The skills involve five levels apiece, um, and there's a, a big gamut of skills. So, as you gain these levels, when you go to make a skill roll, you get 20% chance of success for each of the levels you go up. Uh, now the game caps off at I think 96% being um, absolute failure and 1% being absolute success. But um, the, the thing I see is the rest of the rolls in the game for combat anyhow, uh, these are all d20 rolls. And it seems to me that you could really, instead of doing the percentile for the, the skills here, you could just do away with that, make it instead of plus 20%, plus 4 points on the die roll, and you get an equivalent system. I think that newer players would prefer that, where it's you know one die for all the action mechanics, and then you know the other crazy dies for things like damage and other random events. But um, the, the skills are sort of funny. They're, it's a huge list of them. It really is. I kind uh, of forget how many in total, but uh, I mean it looks to me like I mean we're probably talking somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, maybe 20, 25, something along those lines. Um, and they, they go from simple things like, uh, you know, building and medical skills and things like that that you would expect uh, to master criminal work to uh, 
you know, things like um, engineering, stage magician happens to be its own thing. Um, we had master criminal, but we also have street criminal because they're different skills, right? <laughs> uh, there's theatrical, which is different from stage magician, uh, excuse me. Um, and then there's also futurist, which is different than engineering. Um, but uh, what's interesting is on these levels that you have, each level deals with like different areas. So there, there comes some strange situations where like, for example, with engineering, you start off at level one with mechanical engineering, and then level two is electrical, the nuclear. And I guess, you know, you can see that that sort of makes sense that you're building kind of maybe more complex types of understandings. But I don't know that a mechanical engineer would argue that uh, he's not as skilled as an electrical engineer or vice versa. Um, and then some of them get really kind of outrageous where, for example, with uh, communications, uh, you, you do radio first and then your second level is Morse code. I'm not sure, sure I get that, you know. What, what really is somewhat funny is that as you get up to the highest rank, the highest rank of every level is level five where you pick between it being a futuristic version of the skill or a magical version of the skill. Okay, and sometimes that might make sense. You know, engineering magical. Okay, you're making magical spells and constructs and whatnot. Uh, engineering futuristic. Okay, you're dealing with, you know, hard energy uh, constructs and stuff like that. Things, you know, made with nanites and all that kind of thing. But some of them are sort of comical. You have a futuristic version of bureaucracy. Ooh, you know, this this red tape is done on a data pad. And even magical bureaucracy. Uh, and, and granted, Mulvey uh, goes to extent to explain, you know, what that would look like. But it just, it humors me that all of them have a futuristic and magical version. Um, so you pick out your skills. Your skill points are based on your attributes, and the rule is that you can spend uh, less than half on combat and then the other portion on actual skills. Uh, you can stack them up so you're really good at one and less you know, successful at the others. Uh, that, that's up to you. Moving on, uh, the, the combat, of course, when you put your points into the combat skill, those translate into points on a d20. So I guess really you could go the other route too. You could make this game completely percentile if you wanted. Although I think the D20 plays a little faster. Uh, let's take a look here. Combat. Uh, we get into some interesting points here. Some things I really think are neat concepts that could be usable in other games. Because this game deals with such a wide variety of settings. And you have normal stuff. You have you know medieval stuff. You have magical things. And you have you know space age sci-fi things. It, it gets kind of confusing or, or could become a contention of... Well, you know, what trumps what? If I'm wearing medieval plate armor, does it do anything against a machine gun? Does that machine gun do anything against a force field? And they, they make it pretty simple. They basically lay things out like this. Okay, you've got basically what would maybe be considered prehistoric equipment, or, or, or firearms and armor, I guess is more specifically what they're talking about. And then you have modern arms and armor. And then you have futuristic arms and armor. And then you have magical arms and armor. And those levels trump each other. So for example, if you're shooting a submachine gun at me, but I have magical plate mail, then my magical plate mail works. Okay, it defends me against your machine gun. And you know, it, the way armor and, and equipment works here is it, it doesn't you know, completely nullify it, but it uh, takes away some of the effects of it. Conversely though, if I'm you know, shooting at you with a magical 
wand and you're wearing, you know, some sort of, you know, space age mecha suit, um, the magical wand of fireballs uh, trumps the space age mecha suit and it has no effect. So if, if your weapon is higher than what the armor is, as far as those stages of development, then the armor has no effect. It makes it somewhat interesting. I, I, I kind of like that idea that, you know, here you could have some, you know, barbarian from the Dark Ages running around with a magical battle axe taking out, you know, these robots or whatever from the 33rd century. Um, interesting stuff, in my opinion. Just a nice dynamic, a simple dynamic that move that forward. Beyond that, uh, as your character gains experience, they have options to gain powers that are like specific to different eras, little kind of like almost superhero kind of powers. And then also on different levels of the game, Time Lord powers. Now we had talked about some of these Time Lord powers before. Uh, they start off pretty simple where you're able to like see things that other people can't see that are dimensionally displaced. You're able to start to have dimensional language where it kind of gets rid of this issue of, well, you know, if we go back in time, you know, we can't speak Latin. Why do we know what these Roman soldiers are saying? Well, by second level, Anywhere you go, you adapt to whatever the, the present language is for that particular setting. Um, there's spatial projection where you can move great distances within um, the, the, the place you're on, you know, planet Earth or whatever. So you can kind of warp to, oh, you know, now we're in England, whoop, now we're in South America, whoop, now we're over in Russia, you know, things like that. Um, and then there's temporal projections, the next one, where you can purposely go back in time. Um, dimensional projections the next one where you can go to other dimensions including these pocket dimensions we talked about then you have double healing where you get your hit points back faster or life points in this case uh, then transmigration um, that's where you're able to actually move your life force into another body just kind of an interesting idea you know you you get to playing this character so long maybe you get bored with it eh, I'm just gonna zap myself into this person over here and now I'm this person uh, it can make some kind of interesting uh, maybe not one-shots, but interesting special events within your campaign, I guess I'd call them. Uh, then there's space travel and time travel. Uh, oh, I, I should go back. I said temporal projections where you uh, warped yourself into the past or, or future, but that's not actually true. Actually, you project a piece of yourself into the future or past, and your actual physical body is then left somewhat, uh, you know, it's like astral projection in D&D. &D. Your, your body's sitting there very vulnerable while you're in that state. Uh, moving on to the powers that the game has in it, as you go through these adventures, based on your own Game Master's judgment and the events of the adventure, you could be taught things like uh, magical spells, you could end up with robotic armatures and stuff like that. Uh, there, there's a great flux of things that can happen and, and abilities you can pick up that, again, are kind of on the superhero level of things. It doesn't go into much detail about how you get them which is a good and bad thing. I mean, that's a very old school sort of aesthetic where it's, hey, your dungeon master will come up with when you are allowed to have these. That book, you know, that's part of the story. It's just not something that's expected or, hey, I got this level, I automatically get that. Um, so I do like kind of that idea that, hey, this, you know, we don't need to tell you when you get these. You'll get these when you get these, okay? Your, your game master will let you know that. There's a uh, precognition power that has an interesting little write-up about how if in the middle of an event, the person decides they want to use precognition to have, you know, witnessed this event, that you just kind of rewind the whole game back to where they uh, have, you know, originally saw this go down. And I think that's interesting. I think it could be, you know, frustrating if it's used too often. 
And I think you definitely, as a game master, have to kind of put your foot down and say, hey, you, know, you can rewind about five minutes. <laughs> you know, we're not going to play five scenes into this adventure and then come back to the first scene. Um, but I, I think that's an interesting kind of cool way that, oh, you know, what you just saw, what just happened was what could be, you know, what the future might hold. Um, the, the other thing, and it kind of goes along with this, is I was sitting there thinking about that Time Lord power of time travel and, and uh, uh, temporal projection, and how do you do that in a role-playing game? You know, it, you really have to almost create some form of chart or flow chart, I guess, where you say, okay, we're now moving all you guys back to this point in the story or, or this point in reference to the story, and almost do that whole back to the future thing with the chalkboard and oh you know we split the timeline now this part's no longer in front of you anymore and I think that could be kind of interesting but you would definitely I think need to set up some sort of physical map that you could illustrate to yourself and to the players where you're at in the time stream and how that relates to where you used to be and where you potentially could or couldn't end up all right uh, moving along folks there's just a few more notes here I wanted to make sure I got through there's an XP formula gives out in the Tome of Foes, uh, it's very D&D-like. It's, it's got your, your creatures and what they're worth. It does sort of have like a challenge rating sort of thing, which is interesting. So the Book of Foes, uh, it has so much in it. And I'm sure that, uh, is, I mean, there's a lot of really wild and weird things. And I'm sure that a lot of them come from actual mythologies. But it's a little overwhelming. Um, especially since a lot of them seem to be very duplicate in, in, uh, in sentiment, anyhow. You know, what I'm talking about is like, there's, you know, 12 different cat people. You know, this cat person's an Egyptian goddess, and this cat person's an anthropomorphic cat person, and this cat person's an alien cat person. Um, and it just, it was almost like you were given that 64 count of crayons. And, you know, even though you got that big box sitting on your kindergarten table, you're only using the same eight crayons all the time. You know, just basic blue, basic, you know, whatever. Uh, I don't think that some of these they're so far reaching and so indifferent than some of the others maybe are a waste of space I don't know and that's being critical of it because it really is an interesting piece I, I really feel like if I had gotten this box in my younger years I'd be very excited to see that the completeness of its uh, book of foes talked about it on the podcast I was disappointed when it came to humans uh, it did have some historical figures in it it had some literary figures in it which was cool but some of the ones historically that it's like, man, these are these are my main enemies in my game. These are the the villains that you know we're gonna stitch together in some sort of Cobra Commander plot to create the ultimate you know uh, adversary. Uh, Stalin, Hitler, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan. These mainstays they're not in there, uh, but yet they have Billy the Kid and, and some of these other uh, historic figures. I was just a little disappointed in that. I, I kind of thought those were some low hanging fruit that I think most game masters would want. So there's this scavenger wheel that reminds me of a lot of these D&D type monsters. You know, it reminds me of like a carrion crawler or, a, or a, maybe a, a, gel, a gelatinous cube. It rolls around and it, you know, picks things up. It's got all these mouths and things on it as it rolls that, uh, you know, keep continuously facing downward as they roll around and scooping and eating things up. Um, the Tiamat in this book was interesting. The Tiamat's more of a Cthulhu looking monster, which, which I found interesting. The uh, the thing I think, uh, oh, you know what, let's jump back real quick. Before you get to the, the Book of Foes, the, the end of the regular rule book does go over a gambit of lands 
that you can explore within this game, aside from just Earth. So it goes into these mythological areas, uh, and talks about um, these different worlds where, you know, they're, they're tangent universes where, um, you know, the British defeated the Americans in the Revolution and, you know, things like that. And on this, on this world, it's just like our world, but there's actually magic, and it has kind of, you know, like the, the whole Eberron, uh, Harry Potter kind of feel to it. And um, I think, that, what was that one? That was like uh, Pride On or... Piedon or something like that, I can't remember. But at any rate, uh, it gives a, a really neat landscape of places you could go explore. Details them, gives some interesting maps, although the maps are kind of, they're each very different from each other. Some of them, you know, have a, a standard role-playing game look to them, uh, and others are more uh, just real basic outlines of places with, you know, shaded political territories and stuff like that, uh, more what you'd see in a history class. Just moving to the end here. I think the, the, the game suffers from one thing that I think it really could have used, and that is a meta plot. I think that if you're going to run a Lords of Creation game, you want to set on the outskirts some things that are going in motion for the Lords of Time. You know, who are they as a group? Who are their adversaries as a group? What are the adversaries up to in a big structure? And as I understand it, I, I haven't played these or read them, but I, the modules that came out for the game... Uh, I believe there were supposed to be five, and I think four of them actually got published. They do thread together in a larger plot with a narrative that's you know in the in the shadows of each adventure, and I think that's really the kind of cool thing to do with this. You're going to do all this time travel. You're going to fix all these problems in the the splitting you know multiverse or whatever. But there's someone pulling puppet strings in the in the dark corner of the universe, and you eventually figure out who that is, and, and it ultimately have to stop them. But I do think you know the, the game should offer some some groups that are, you know, the evil Time Lords, some creatures or things that are, you know, in a systematic way causing problems. Otherwise, it's, I think, hard for at least a new game master or someone that's just picking this up to come up with some form of, of, of structured games that, that, you know, feed into one another. I think that's nice to have that, you know, that grain of setting. There's definitely a forces of law and chaos at work within the game setting, you know, very uh, Morcockian, and I think you know that could be played up. You know, there there could you know they could name those forces and, and you know talk about you know how they work and in what uh, in what way that balance is kept. I think I'd get rid of the skill tree system. It's there, there's so many different skills and so many different levels. I think as a game master that would get kind of a, a headachey sort of thing. I don't know what I would replace it with. I don't know if I would just simply instead of branching off each skill, I would just simply say, you know, there's different modifiers for the complexity of the thing that you're trying to do within that skill set. So, you know, if I'm rolling engineering and I'm trying to do something simple like, you know, I don't know, change a tire on a car or whatever, I, I just roll standard or maybe I get a bonus on my roll. But if I'm trying to do something really wild and out there like uh, you reverse the polarity of the flux capacitor, then I'm sitting there with some penalties on my roll. Uh, I like the, again, the primitive versus modern versus futuristic versus magic element of weapons and damage and all that. I really like how that was done. The hit points, I thought, were, were kind of interesting. You don't gain a lot of them throughout the game. So you've got enough that you can soak a little damage, but it doesn't get to being like our, our Dungeons and Dragons scenario where, you know, you got your fighter running in there with 50, 60 hit points and, you know, they're getting hit left and right and right and left and they're, they're not falling down dead. I think, uh, you know, I talked about it, I think it'd be fun to take this and run it through some of the classic TSR catalog, uh, you know, go to some Boot Hill, 
maybe you know go to the caves of chaos go through like sundown on star mist with star frontiers uh maybe the final weapon from top secret and somehow you know net those all together you know maybe end up in the like one of the bloodstone modules with orcus you know pulling all the strings or whatever i, I just think that'd be kind of cool and i think the players i play with would get a kick out of some of the you know touches and nostalgia uh, done with that so uh and i already mentioned I, i'd love to play a time bandits kind of game using maybe this setting i just love that movie i think it's so creative so fun all right and with that i think i'll wrap it up i've made this addendum long enough thank you for sitting here and listening to me i want to thank lawrence schick i want to thank alan hammock i want to thank uh mike monaco for all the input they gave on this um and again uh, Dave Bullis, if you are out there, if you happen to know him and can get this message to him, I hope he's okay. I hope he's fine. And if you would want to message me on Facebook, I would love to talk with you about some things. Uh, just the, the concept that you were there here at the you know the dawn of the industry doing some playtesting with these guys at the Dungeon uh, Hobby Shop, uh, that just fascinates me, man. And if you happen to be listening to this and you were also in a situation like that, I want to hear from you guys. Uh, it's, you know, I'm not doing this so that I got somebody to chat at. I'm doing this because I want to start hearing from you. Uh, you can always respond to us on our Facebook page at This Old Dungeon. And you can uh, also email us, thisolddungeon at gmail.com. That's T-H-I-S-O-L-D-U-N-G-E-O-N at gmail.com. I hope I spelled that right. Anyhow. Um, I love being here for you guys and uh, go out into this world and do great things. It can be a dark place from time to time, but we can all make it a little brighter. Have a great week. This old dungeon is copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the show's hosts and guests, and may not reflect the reality you're living. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will... Oh, wrong script. Anyhow, folks, enjoy your day.